Hello and welcome. You've tuned in to the School of Ministry podcast. Paul is your Bible teacher today. If you have questions you would like addressed, let us know. Maybe you have a need in your life and want to know how the Bible gives answers that apply to us today. Feel free to contact us. Now enjoy the lesson. James chapter 2. I'd like to begin reading in verse 5. And we'll read through verse 13. Listen, my beloved brethren. Has God not chosen the poor of this world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which he promised to those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor man. Do not the rich oppress you and drag you into the courts? Do they not blaspheme that noble name by which you are called? If you really fulfill the royal law according to the scriptures, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. You do well. But if you show partiality, you commit sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. For whoever shall keep the whole law and yet stumble in one point, he is guilty of all. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. Now, if you do not commit adultery, but you do murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. So speak and so do as those who will be judged by the law of liberty. For judgment is without mercy to the one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. We've examined how easily we classify people. We talked about that in the last couple of weeks, about showing partiality. And it's in our society, it's in our nature, that we tend to stratify or classify people. And this thought continues on from where we were in, in verses 1 through 4. So James talks about a principle here, and he's illustrating that principle because he gave us the example of a rich man that came into the church and everyone fawned over him and uh, just did everything they could. And then the poor man that came in and they just kind of said, find a seat, find, sit somewhere. But <laughs> the idea was just get out of my way. Now James is giving us a very, very practical application to that. And he begins, and it's so wonderful because just like in verse 1 where he started, my brethren, now in verse 5 he says, listen, my brethren, or maybe your version says, hearken. It means the same thing. Listen, I'm about to tell you something very, very important. Listen, my beloved brethren. Has God not chosen the poor of this world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which he promised to those who love him? There's the question. There's going to be the illustration because he's showing the inconsistency of respecting one and disrespecting another. And if we're not respecting the poor person because he's kind of lower on that human level. We think of them as being a little bit lower. Then we are being called to listen. Listen to this. Pay attention. Hearken. Tune in. James is such a, a wonderful writer as he is inspired by God because he says, my brethren. So he's not going to beat you over the head with this. Here is a passion for the people, 
and he has that pastor's heart that we've talked about, and he loves the truth, but he also loves the people that are listening. He loves those that are, he's coming to. And so he doesn't hammer them in the head. He says, my beloved brethren, listen to me. Like every good preacher, every good exhorter, he calls them to attention. He's saying, let me show you the inconsistency that comes with partiality. Let me show you how that is inconsistent with the whole word of God. That's where our text is. We see number one, the divine choice of the poor. God has chosen the poor. Has not God chosen the poor? Isn't that what it says? Has not God chosen the poor of this world to be rich in faith? Now he's contrasting the choice of the poor and the rich. Because look at verse 7. The rich, do not the rich oppress you? and drag you into the court? Do they not blaspheme that noble name by which you are called? So here's the contrast. Here he's saying the poor have been chosen by God as heirs of the kingdom, and the rich, why are you showing partiality? Why are you turning your back on one and not the other? So when you go against the poor and the downcast, you go against God who has chosen them. That's why James is saying that's utterly inconsistent. You've reversed the whole picture. Impartiality then is seen in light of really two facts. The first fact is the divine choice of the poor. Has God not chosen the poor of this world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which he has promised to them that love him? But you have despised the poor, he goes on. Now, this really flies in the face of Calvinism because it's not that God has chosen, if you are poor, you are going to heaven. That's not what he's saying. He's not saying that that's what you've got to do in order to be chosen, that God had chosen a, a specific group, and it's not the individuals. Just as God chose Israel, but every Israelite had to have personal faith. He had to trust the Lord. They were looking forward to Messiah. Nowadays, the children of Israel are looking back and they're seeing Jesus as that Messiah. And it's the same with the poor. Every person is able to respond or responsible. God has chosen the poor, but you, if you act like this, that you've despised the very ones that God has chosen. Now, what poor is he talking about? I think that's important for us to recognize. Because over in Matthew chapter 5, remember he talks about, blessed are the poor in spirit. But here, he's not talking about those who are poor in spirit. He is talking about those that are economically, maybe in poor in status. They're not, they haven't made it there yet. So generally speaking, throughout all of our Baptist history, God has chosen the poor. It's interesting because if you'll go back and later on, I encourage you, go back and Google poor men of Lyons, poor men of Lombardy. You'll see that there were some very great men of our Baptist forefathers, like Robert de Abrisi. That was back in 1117. He began to preach. He was a, a rich merchant. And he gave everything that he had to the poor so he could go all around Europe and preach the gospel. And he began to be called the poor men of Lombardy. Those that were following along and, and following them, they were considered, oh, those are the poor men. 
They just don't have much. Why? Because they had dedicated themselves to preaching the gospel and watching how God was going to provide their each and every need. And then we've got other men like Peter Waldo. Peter Waldo was a very wealthy merchant in Lyons, France. He sold everything when he had come to know Christ as Lord and Savior. Those that followed him began to be called the humilati, the humiliated, the poor men of Lyons. Oh, you know those poor people. <laughs> but they were the ones out spreading the gospel, using what they had to meet the needs of the poor. They were out there in France and Germany, Italy, wherever they could go, and they said that they followed in the steps of the Cathari. The Cathari were the pure ones. And they did not look at the things of this world to be important, but only the things of the Lord. So maybe that's what he's talking about. The poor, those who in the eyes of the world, the world thinks they're poor. They're the ones maybe that we look at are the down and outers, the ones that are without, but that's a general principle. The people of God oftentimes have been dominated by the poor. We looked at that. We saw how that was true throughout the beginning of the book of Acts. The people who do not have everything that the rich possess. That's who he's speaking of. Those that don't have everything that the rich people possess. Why? Because they have to depend on the Lord. So that's not to say that no rich person, by the way, that God doesn't save rich people, and that's not it. Because we know that there have been some very definite wealthy people in the Scriptures. Like Abraham. Abraham was very, very wealthy he was wealthy beyond others in his time. And yet God prepared him. God used him. God chose him to be the father of a nation. What about Job? You know, the scripture in, in Job chapter 1 talks about that he has 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, 500 she-ashes, and a very great household, so that this man was the greatest in all of the men of the East, it says. So Job was a very wealthy man. And what happens, God says, have you considered my servant Job, as he says to Satan? Have you considered this man? Have you looked at him? The question is not, well, if I have means, if I have money, that I, I'm not going to heaven. That's not at all. In the New Testament, we talked about Joseph of Arimathea was a rich man. How about Levi, Matthew, Matthew was a tax collector. He was concerned with leaving the Jews and kind of being a turncoat. He was very more concerned about having the things than his people, than his heritage. To become a tax collector for the Romans, that was the highest level of being traitor that you could think of. So the Romans protected the tax collectors. So here was Matthew or Levi that was a tax collector, very wealthy man. And yet when he met Christ, his life was changed. And he left it all. What does the scripture say? That he got up, he left the table, he left the prosperous business, and he wanted to be about the work of the Lord. So there were rich in the New Testament church. Paul talks about it to Timothy in chapter 6, verse 17 through 19. He says, charge them that are rich. It says, charge them that are rich to share. That is literally to stoop down, help those that are not rich, help those that are poor, help those that have need. God's economy will bless 
when you have a heart for the poor. God is going to bless you when you have a heart for the poor. So in spite of the general mass of redeemed people over and over that have very little, God sometimes brings in people with means to help to share the love. You know, I had to cut out so many scriptures from the Old Testament, but let me just give you one. Psalm 41. Well, I'm not going to just give you one, but I'll give you a couple. But I cut out probably 20. So I'm, you can say, glory, Brother Paul. Thank you. Because I, but I want you to see the heart of God. In Psalm 41, verse 1, it says, Blessed is he who considers the Lord. The Lord will deliver him in time of trouble. And the Lord will preserve him. And the Lord will keep him alive. And he shall be blessed upon the earth. And thou will, deliver, will not deliver him unto the will of his enemies. The Lord will strengthen him on the bed of languishing. Thou wilt make all his bed in his sickness. In other words, you take care of the poor, God is going to take care of you because you have the heart of God as what's in your life. There are so many others. Proverbs 28, 27. He that gives to the poor shall not lack, but he that hides his eyes... In other words, he says, I didn't see that. I don't want to get involved. Shall have many a curse. So if you give to the poor, you won't lack anything. And if you turn away, the Lord says, then there'll, there'll be all kinds of problems. Proverbs 31. Remember the woman of Proverbs 31 that cared for her household? What does it say that Proverbs 31 woman, she stretches out her hands to the poor? Over and over, she had the heart of God, you see. So Isaiah, so many of the prophets speak of this. Now, if you would say that you really walk with God, then James says, He who chose the poor, the poor of this world, to be rich in faith, he will reveal himself through your attitude toward those people. That's what James is talking about. He wants you to show the attitude of God through your life. You'll share his concern if you have the heart of God in you. The one who walks with God will share the concern of God for poor people, for needy people. Isn't that in what we saw in James chapter 1 where he talked about pure religion and undefiled as this? What was it? To visit the widows and the orphans. Why? Because we saw that was the heart of God. He wanted to care for those that did not have. That's the attitude of God. Now, remember the story of the rich young ruler that came to Jesus, and he said, Lord, I want to follow you, and I have kept all of these laws. I have done all of these things. I've kept them all of my life. And Jesus, he says, what else do I need to do? And Jesus said, sell all and follow me. Take everything you have, sell it. Give the money to the poor, Jesus told him. Matthew 19, 21, it says, he went away sorrowful. He didn't want to do that. He did not want to give it up because his heart hadn't been changed. There was not, nothing changed in his life. He was holding on to those things because he, he saw that that's where his hope was. That's where his resources were. Rather than recognizing that God was his resource, rather than recognizing that God was the one that was going to provide his every need. And there's so many illustrations like that. What about in Luke chapter 19 and verse 8? There's a man by the name of Zacchaeus. 
Children see Zacchaeus was a wee little man, and a wee little man was he. Now he was chief of all the tax collectors. Talk about great wealth. He also, like Matthew, was a traitor to the Jews. He's a Jew, but he's collecting all of the taxes from all of the men like Matthew, and he's the one who takes them to the Romans themselves. He's the chief tax collector. And it says that he was rich. It said in verse 2 of Luke 19 that when he was converted, it says, Behold, Lord, half of my goods I give to the poor. Half of everything. He's a very wealthy man. And then he goes on and he says, And if I've taken anything from anybody by false accusation, I will repay him fourfold. Why? Because now the heart of God God was in him. Something had changed in him. And that's why Jesus turned and he said to Zacchaeus, this day is salvation. Come to thy house. He's not saying because you gave to the poor. He's saying because you have received Christ as Savior. There's been a change in your heart. There's been a change in your life. You're, not, you're no longer the same. This day salvation has come. And now he's showing the very heart of God. It is the living evidence of faith in Christ. You see, that's what James is talking about here. Living it out. How do you know that that's true? How do you know salvation has come? Because you see the heart of God in you, the attitude of God, that you want to help the downcast. You want to help the poor. And that's just so evident in the ministry of Jesus. I cannot give you all of the scriptures that I found, but over and over, Jesus cared for the poor. You remember, by the way, that the disciples carried a little purse. And when they were in Bethany and Jesus was anointed by Mary with that sweet, beautiful ointment, Judas gets upset. You remember how Judas gets so upset? And what does he say? This could have been sold for 300 denarii or 300 days wages. That's what he's saying. We could have given the money to the poor. That tells us something important. Jesus had a heart for the poor. They were giving to the poor. They knew. But of course... The scripture goes on because it was pretty customary that they were giving to the poor, that Jesus was teaching his disciples to take care of this. So the very next verse, though, says Judas did not care for the poor. He was a thief and he had the bag and he possessed what was in it. Zacchaeus was truly converted. Zacchaeus was a great illustration of what happens when the life and the heart is changed. And Judas who walked with our Lord, who walked with the apostles, is an example of one whose heart was not changed, who wanted the things of this world. He was never converted. He wanted it in his own pocket. So that's where his love was. That's what he was trusting in. But when you have the love of God, you have that kind of giving that reaches out to the people that's poor. That's the mark of salvation. That's why James is using this as a test. You remember back in Galatians chapter 2, verse 10. I, I'm going to quickly turn over there and read, I think, 9 and 10, because it, it, mean, it fits this. And when James, and by the way, this is the same James that wrote the epistle. And when James, Cephas, that is Peter, and John, who seemed to be pillars, perceived the grace that had been given to me, 
They gave me and Barnabas the right hand of fellowship that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. They desired only that we should remember the poor, the very thing which I also am eager to do. The heart of all of the apostles was that they would not leave anyone out. And you can go through and you can follow the life of Paul and you can see when there was a plague and a famine in Jerusalem, what did he do? He went to the Gentiles and they took up a collection for the poor saints of Jerusalem. And over and over in Macedonia and Achaia, he finally has to come back in Romans 15. He has to come back and say, you've given enough. You've given out of the abundance and out of the meagerness, he says, God identifies with the poor. When God had chosen the nation of Israel, he chose them because they were least of all the people. So in a very real sense, they were a, a desperate group. Deuteronomy 7, 7 and 8, and that's a good verse to know. It's a good passage because it's really at the heart of why the Lord chose Israel. It says, The Lord did not set his love on you nor choose you because you were more in number than any other people. You were the least of all people. But because the Lord loved you and because he would keep the yoke which he swore unto your fathers, has the Lord brought you with a mighty hand and redeemed you out of the house of bondage from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. So God saw their distress. God saw their poverty. He saw them and he loved them. He chose them. But you know what? In the New Testament church, what about the church? In 1 Corinthians 1, 26, Paul characterizes that about the Lord's churches. You see your calling, brothers, how not many of you are wise after the flesh. In other words, what he's saying, there's not highly educated, there's not the high stratus people, not many mighty, that is powerful, prominent, not many highbrow, you might say noble is the word, in the church. But God chose to call, what? The foolish things of the world to confound the wise. The weak things of the world to confound the mighty. The base, that means the common. The base things of the world. The things which are despised, like poor people. You see, God has chosen things that are nothing to bring to nothing things that are, in order that no flesh can take credit in order that no flesh should glory in his presence, in what Christ has done himself, in what God is doing. You know what the Corinthian church, Paul talks, they were all kinds of sinners. Paul explains, he says they were former fornicators, idolaters, adulterers, effeminate, homosexuals, thieves, covetous, drunkards, revilers, extortioners, that's the group that makes up the Corinthian church. <laughs> but that was the church. Not many high, not many wise. Paul says, but such were some of you. When the Lord called you out to be his New Testament church, when the Lord has called you, when the Lord has saved you, you see, it may be that you were poor, you were common. That's the idea. The Lord chose Israel because Israel was poor and in bondage, and he chose them. Now, that doesn't mean there's no individual responsibility. That doesn't mean because you're poor, you don't have much that God 
doesn't hold you responsible. So James, what's the purpose for this? Has not God chosen the poor of this world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which he has promised to them that love him? First he chose them, and there's two promises here, to be rich in faith. Why? Because when you don't have the riches of this world to fall back on, when you don't have anything else, you have the Lord. And you begin to recognize, the Lord fed me today. The Lord clothed me today. The Lord took care of me today. And that means that we recognize the eternal riches that he's given. As a matter of fact, isn't that what he talks about? That we are heirs of the kingdom, rich in faith. Because your faith has been exercised day by day because you don't know how you're going to make it the next day. We may never have the riches of this world to be rich in faith. <laughs> Their faith in Christ, it means, has brought them the eternal riches, the true riches. All that any man or woman could ever hope for, could ever ask for, he gives us richly all things in Christ. He provides everything. His riches superabound in us, not in the earthly sense, but in the eternal sense, in the spiritual sense. In Romans 10 and 12 says, there's no difference between the Jew and Gentile. The same Lord over all is rich unto all that call upon him. And whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Whosoever, whosoever, rich, poor, it's each individual. He's rich toward the ones who come in faith. And in chapter 11, right there of Romans, verse 33, Paul cries out with this, in this great passage, Oh, the depth of the riches of the wisdom and the knowledge of God. How rich we are. How gloriously rich we are. We could go on and on. But secondly, we must see that we are heirs of the kingdom, which he has promised to them that love him. What is the kingdom? What's the kingdom that he's speaking of here? Well, here he's talking about the whole sphere of salvation. We say it over and over again. The kingdom is the sphere of salvation. That includes all the realities. There's kind of two phases because there's the rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, right? That he has promised to those that love him. Saying the same thing. How do we become rich? How do we own the kingdom? We possess the kingdom and all that God has promised to those that love him, it becomes ours. We are co-heirs with Christ. So let me just give you a little theological note because I think it's important here. Because we have something in our work, unfortunately, called New Lightism. And New Lightism is unfortunately linking the kingdom with some kind of works that you're not in the kingdom of God until you've been scripturally baptized and you do this and you do that and you've worked and now you get all these rewards and now you get to go to the kingdom. But that's not what the scripture says here. That's apart from the scripture. So I want you to be aware of that. It's sad that many are deceived and they miss this. They miss the entire message of God's impartiality. That God would save one and all, all who would come to him. And let me illustrate in case you're confused. 
because I want to make the point so that it sticks. It follows right in the flow. What is the kingdom and how do we understand the kingdom? It's really to be understood with that salvation. Matthew 19, verse 16. The rich young ruler has come to Jesus and he says, Good master, what do I do that I may have eternal life? So now that's the question. What can I do to have eternal life? Verse 23, Jesus said to the disciples, after talking to the young man, I say to you that a rich man shall have great difficulty entering into the kingdom of heaven. The kingdom of heaven then is equated to eternal life. And then it goes on in verse 24. In fact, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than a rich man to enter in the kingdom of God. So now you have eternal life, the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God. All of them are linked. They're inseparable. And that's important for us to recognize because we want to be pulling people into the kingdom of God. We want to see them coming. And in verse 28, Jesus said, Verily I say to you, that you who have followed me in the regeneration when the Son of Man sits on the throne of his glory, you'll also sit upon twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. And everyone that has forsaken houses or brethren or sisters or father or mother or wife or children or lands for my name's sake shall receive an hundredfold and shall inherit everlasting life. It's not what you do. That's not what Jesus is saying. He's saying because of what's happened in your life, that all of these terms, everlasting life, eternal life, kingdom of heaven, kingdom of God, they're all come about because of the salvation that has come into a person's life. So you cannot say, well, you're saved, but... <laughs> Well, let me just divert a little bit. Remember the old song, Give Me a, a Cabin in the Corner of Glory Land. I love that old song. I, I, I really enjoy it. But you know what? There are no cabins in the corner of Glory Land. <laughs> There's nowhere, well, I'll just go off, you know, and God's going to send me off this way or that way. Notice it said, To them that love him. A person puts faith in Christ and loves him, and he gives the evidence that he's received this riches, and his life is changed. So there's no outcast in heaven. There's no lower class. There's no cabins off in the corner of glory land. There's not going to be any shanty towns in glory land. <laughs> we drive along the freeways, and now we're seeing all kinds of shanty towns. Some people would say, well, you know, by your good works, you're sending up marble and gold and bricks and beautiful pillars. And some are sending up wood, two by fours, hay, cardboard, <laughs> something like that. And so you're just going to get to build a shanty? No, that's not at all what the Lord's saying. Now, we'll get into rewards at another time, because I think that that's a, a good thing, and we ought to be striving, but it's because of what the Lord has done. So the second issue here is really that they were showing partiality to the rich. In verse 6, 7, do not the rich oppress you, drag you into the courts? Do they not blaspheme that noble name by which you are called? They draw 
that drawn before the judgment seat, dragged before the judgment seat. They were slandering Jesus. They're rejecting Christ. These wealthy Christ-rejecting Jews, no doubt, were bringing in these Christians. And yet, they were saying, oh, these are, the, these are the great guys. They were probably Sadducees that had rejected Christ. But no doubt, in their community, they were highly thought of. No doubt. But yet, the Scripture says that they were blaspheming the name of Jesus, dragging these poor people into courts, harassing them by the name by which you are called. At the point of baptism, these Jews had to be called like Christ, Christian. They were given a new name. They were given the name of Christ. They were Christ's own. They belonged to him. And it's the rich people who were oppressing them, not the poor people. James reminds them that they belong to Jesus Christ, that they are not to practice partiality. For the one thing, they're not to look down on the poor because God chose the poor for eternal riches, but they ought not to side with the rich. It's the rich who usually oppress the poor. So if you have an attitude of partiality, you're lining up with the enemy against the very name of the Lord Jesus. Now, I think verse 10 kind of sums up this whole thought. Verse 10, he talks about, For whoever shall keep the whole law and yet stumble in one point, he is guilty of all. In other words, we want our life to be brought in line with the will of God. Verse 12 says it as well so clearly, and I'm having to, to get right through this, but I want you to see the whole, the whole portion. So speak and so do. That's what he's telling us. Let your words and your actions be the same, for we too will be judged as others are judged. We too, just as we judge, we're going to have that same measure, but mercy triumphs over judgment. One writer says, Money still does the talking far too loudly in Christian circles, and where and when it does, the glory of Christ departs. Verse 8, James moves to that seriousness of this sin. And we're going to see how this thought continues on, how our life ought to be changed because of our relationship with Christ. But two quick closing stories. There was a Japanese Christian, one of our Baptist brethren over there, name of Toyohiko Kawaga. I'm not getting Kagawa. I'll try to get that. He was deeply burdened for the poor Japanese in the slums of Kobe, Japan. Spent years of his life trying to minister, trying to meet the needs of those people. And one of his lungs was filled with tuberculosis. He was a wealthy man. He was able to come to America and get treatment. And the doctors told him that he wasn't going to live long if he kept going to the slums. And what did he say? If my life is short, it will be full. So what does he do? He moves into one of the rooms in the slums so he could be ready to preach the gospel to the people he was living around. Even though there was stench, there was dirt, those back streets where Mr. Kagawa lived, every day he preached to the poor people. But on one particular day as he was preaching, and his text was John 3.16, his theme was the love of God for unworthy sinners. 
was not an easy place to preach the gospel, to preach about the love of God. Wasn't an easy place. Story goes on about the dismal rain, the dank streets, the rough men that were there, the crowds around. They were laughing and mocking him. And they said, what does this little man with his funny talk about God know? And what does anyone know about whether God loves us or not? One man mocked. Seems they had nothing to argue because even Toyohiko tried to answer them. And what happened was he began to cough up blood and coughed up so much he began to spit up a significant amount of blood and they laughed at him. And they said, if God loves you, why doesn't he do something for you? But that persistent little man lifted his arms. He wiped the blood from his mouth with his sleeve and he went on to tell them about God's love. And his biographer says, gradually, in the cold street, their ruckus voices were stilled, for stealing in on their pagan minds was the realization that right before their eyes, in that little stick of a man, was the very proof of what he was saying. He demonstrated God's love. He demonstrated, he showed it. There's another story I came across, and I thought it's fitting to close out. It speaks about a barber. And all of a sudden, his customers, he was so busy, he, he could not keep up with all the customers. And then he found out that the barber shop down the street, that the barber was very ill. He had to close the shop. So all of his customers were coming to him. So what does he do? He takes what he normally averaged in a week, and everything above that, he went to visit the other barber. And he gave them that money to show the very love of God. He demonstrated the attitude that God had placed in his life. The life was a gift. Eternal life is a gift. Reaching out to others. In our closing, we recognize that our impartiality, our impartiality demonstrates God's love. If we are partial to some and not to others, if we only want to talk to some and not to all, we're not showing the love of God that he has shed on us. And after all, mercy triumphs over judgment. Mercy is greater. When you see someone in need, they need Christ. Child of God, are we there, like James, fulfilling the love of God, showing what God only can do. And he changes our life and our hearts so that now we have a heart of compassion. We have the heart of God. And whatever we have in our hands, maybe it's much, maybe it's little, but we use that because it belongs to the Lord. This is all yours, Lord. It's all yours. Maybe you're listening today and you do not know Christ as Savior. Let me tell you that you can be going to that kingdom of heaven. You can be going at the point of death when you close your eyes in death to immediately have eternal life to be in the very kingdom of God. What a wonderful eternal life he offers free you can't earn it you can't you don't deserve it nothing you can do and that's not what james is saying it's not what you do it's because of the change that christ makes within your life do you know christ is lord and savior don't rest today until you trust him contact us we can show you we can talk to you we can explain through the pages of god's word that today you can have eternal life now, child of God, how about it in our lives? Are we demonstrating the love of God? 
to that person that we might think of, well, they don't quite fit. They don't quite look like us. They don't quite meet what our expectation is. Are we then judging? You see, we'll also be judged in the same measure. We've got to beware. James says, listen, brethren, hearken, listen, my brothers, don't allow the thoughts in the mind of this world to allow you to, your Christian life would follow that way. Don't allow the thoughts of this world to dictate how you live for Christ. We're going to just close out with a word of prayer. But I just invite you today, however the Lord may have used this, and I hope that this simple message just has met some great need in your life and in your heart. I pray that today it's moved you to be more like Christ. It's moved you to be following Him in greater ways. Thank you for joining us today and hope you enjoyed the message. We trust you have been encouraged, challenged, or generally built up spiritually. If this lesson has sparked questions or perhaps you have questions about a different topic, let us know. Our information is given on the website or you can reach us at sclministry at gmail.com. We look forward to hearing from you. Is no longer dead.